Good morning and welcome to our morning service. Good to have you with us this morning. If you're visiting us for the first time, we welcome you. We are glad to have Mark Stevenson with us this morning. I always marvel at this and I see when I think of Mark Stevenson, I think of Mark Stevenson sitting, you know, like you people beside Marisa there, because he was little once too. But now he's older, wiser, doesn't get in trouble like he used to. No, not at all. Well, he's come to us this morning visiting mom and dad, and we're just glad that when he comes, he always says, can I help? And we say, yes, sir. He'll come now to lead us in prayer, or rather first read the scripture and lead us in prayer, if you would, brother. Well, brethren, our scripture reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 48, uh, beginning at verse 29. If I could have you turn with me in your copies of the scripture there, please. Genesis chapter 47, I believe. I think I said 48 in verse 29. It's 47 in verse 29, and we will be reading down through the end of uh, 48. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. But I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, Swear unto me. And he sware unto him, and Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. And it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee and I will make of thee a multitude of people and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee into Egypt, are mine, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. And thy issue, which thou begettest after them, shall be thine, and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. And as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in the way, when yet there was but a little way to come unto Ephrath. And I buried her there in the way of Ephrath, the name is the same as Bethlehem. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said unto his father, They are my sons, whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face, and lo, God hath showed me also thy seed. 
And Joseph brought them out from between his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. The Lord has said in his word that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So we are very thankful this morning for the truthfulness of the word of God. Let's once again bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and so privileged this morning to be able to uh, be here this morning and to read your word publicly and to study it and to hear it preached. We are thankful for, for the privilege of being able to come before you in prayer, be able to fellowship with one another. We thank you especially this morning, our God, for the salvation that is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we gather together this day, that you would bless your word, that you would bless our time together. We would ask, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged through these things. And Father, as well, we would ask that if there be any in our midst this morning who as of yet do not know you, we pray that your spirit would be at work in their hearts to convict and convince them of their sin. And Father, we pray that even today they might come to a saving knowledge of yourself. We pray this not only for this place, but wherever your word is preached this day throughout the earth. We pray once again that your spirit would attend that word. And Lord, may many souls be rest through the preaching of it. We thank you now once again for this time together. Bless it, we pray. We would ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
Well, brethren, once again, I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Somebody asked me just uh, a little bit ago before the service this morning how the weather was coming up, and I said that it was very gloomy and cloudy and rainy all the way from uh, Dayton, Ohio, up to Toronto, and then once I started to come toward Perry Sound, the the uh, clouds broke, and it was sunny and beautiful, and if this was my first time, I would think, wow, this is, uh, this is great. But uh, anyway, I'm very thankful to be here and to fellowship with you, brethren, this morning, and I trust that God would richly bless our time together. Our text this morning is found in verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer to the Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, wrote these words, By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Well, once again, before we look together at God's Word, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You once again for the privilege of being able to gather together and to study Your Word. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this these final moments of the life of Jacob here on this earth. Uh, we pray that our hearts would be encouraged as we study it. And Lord, we thank you for the faith of Jacob, and we pray that uh, you would teach us many things uh, from the things that uh, we have here in our text this morning. Guide and direct our time together, we would ask, and we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you are at all familiar with the life of Jacob, you would certainly agree with the statement that his earthly pilgrimage was characterized by many faults and failures. And if we were to judge Jacob's life based upon his many sins and weaknesses, we would be left with a very faulty and one-sided view of this man's character. However, in spite of his shortcomings, the Word of God also makes it very clear that Jacob possessed a very deep personal interest in the covenant that God had made, not only with his grandfather Abraham and also his father Isaac, but he also had an interest in that covenant that God had made to himself as well. In Genesis 28, when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, we are told that he came to a place called Luz, and there he rested. And as he laid down on the ground, he took a rock, and he made that as his pillow, and he fell asleep. And the Word of God tells us there in Genesis 28 that he dreamed a dream. And in that dream, there was a ladder that stretched from the earth all the way up to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending upon that ladder. And it was then that the Lord spoke to Jacob and said unto him these words. He says, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, 
and will bring thee again unto this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And then we are told that when he awoke from that dream, that he got up and he took the stone that he had used for a pillow and he poured oil on the top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel, which means the house of God. And then he made the following vow. He said, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. Back in Genesis 25, we see that Jacob viewed the birthright which his brother Esau had despised as something that held unspeakable value to him. And even though we might question the means that he used in order to obtain it, the fact of the matter was that it was something that he greatly desired. And in the end, as the Word of God tells us very clearly, he was successful in obtaining it. Another example of the value that Jacob placed in the promises of God is found a couple of chapters later in Genesis 27. And in this account, we are told that he so coveted the blessings of God for himself that in spite of the risks that were involved, he agreed to go along with the plan that his mother Rebekah came up with to deceive his father Isaac into thinking that he was Esau in order that he himself might obtain the blessing rather than his brother. And once again, as in the case of the birthright, Jacob was successful in obtaining it. Having fled from home for fear of his brother Esau, he spent many years in Haran working for his uncle Laban. And it was there that the Lord blessed Jacob in everything that he did. And when circumstances became such that it became necessary for both of those men to part ways, Jacob then returned home. And upon hearing the news that Esau was coming toward him with 400 men, he sought the help and deliverance of God by laying hold of the promises that God had made to him back in Bethel many years earlier. He prayed in Genesis 32 verses 9 through 12, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which says to me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And that night we are told that Jacob then wrestled with and prevailed with God. Jacob's earnest desire for the blessing of God was once again manifested here, not only in his actions, but in the expression that came from his heart through his words, that I will not let you go unless you bless me. And it was then that the Word of God tells us that the Lord blessed him there. 
Now with these examples in mind, it would seem that as the biblical account of Jacob's life continues to unfold in the book of Genesis, that his faith seems to shine more and more brightly, if you will, during the latter years of his life. The most notable example of that faith, as we find pointed out by the writer of Hebrews, is exhibited for us here in this passage that we've just read together in Hebrews 11, verse 21, where again it says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. And as we consider together this morning this particular passage, I want us to note four things concerning the faith of Jacob that the writer makes note of here in our text. First of all, I want us to consider together the nature of Jacob's faith. The nature of Jacob's faith. He begins this verse by saying, By faith, Jacob. Then secondly, we will look at the occasion of Jacob's faith. The occasion of Jacob's faith, and that was when he was dying. And then thirdly, we will examine the circumstances of Jacob's faith, and that was when he blessed both the sons of Joseph. And then lastly and finally, we will note the disposition of Jacob's faith, as the writer adds, and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. So note with me then, first of all, please, this morning, the nature of Jacob's faith. Our text begins with the statement, By faith, Jacob. In the latter part of Hebrews 10, the writer is seeking to encourage those to whom he is writing to remain steadfast in their faith. There was a part, there was some, there was a tendency on the part of some Jewish converts to pine after the old Levitical system, and as a result, they needed to be reminded again of the superiority of Christ in his atoning sacrifice and in his priestly office, as compared to the Levitical priesthood and the continual offering of sacrifices that could never take away sin. Another issue for these believers was the intense persecution that each one of these individuals faced for following the Lord Jesus. After their conversion, these people endured what the writer to the Hebrews refers to as a great fight of afflictions. They had been made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and they had took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. And it was in the midst of these trials that they joyfully accepted and endured all of these things because of the assurance that they possessed a better and an eternal possession. And so with these things in mind, the writer then encourages these believers in verses 35 and 36. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. And he then reminds them of the truth that has been characteristic of the children of God all the way down through the course of time. And that is that the just 
shall live by faith. Their experience was no different in many ways than that of those who had come before them. For like the saints who had gone before, these believers possessed the same faith that they did. A faith that preserves the soul even in the midst of the most demanding of circumstances. A faith that will enable the believer to run with patience the race that is set before him. And it is from this context that the writer then launches into this glorious description in Hebrews chapter 11 of the nature, the fruits, and the many examples of faith that he has just been speaking of. The whole chapter repeatedly reminds us of the fact that genuine faith is the placement of one's eternal destiny upon the truth of divine revelation. It is a complete trust and confidence in God that manifests itself in how we think and how we act and how we respond to the various circumstances of life based upon who God is and what he has promised to those who trust him. The Puritans often used the term recumbency to describe the nature of genuine faith. And that word means to place one's full weight upon something. Spurgeon describes the nature of faith in this way. He says that, quote, faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. And it is not an impractical thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of divine revelation. In other words, when Scripture says, by faith Jacob, what it is saying is simply that Jacob believed that God was who he said that he was, and that he would do what he had promised he would do, and Jacob then confidently expected that of him. And that, as a result, had a profound effect upon how Jacob lived. In other words, biblical faith is not a vague hope grounded in wishful thinking. It is not a blind trust. It is not a leap in the dark. Rather, faith is a settled confidence in that something in the future, something that is not yet seen but has been promised by God Himself, will actually come to pass because God Himself has promised that He will bring it about. Thus, biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God who is all-powerful, infinitely wise, and eternally trustworthy. Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance, or faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of the things that we do not see. The person of faith is committed to what his mind and his spirit are convinced of to be true. And the reason why is because it is based upon God's Word, not upon what he can see or what he has experienced. 
The phrase, the evidence of things not seen, carries with it the same truth as the first statement does, the substance of things hoped for, except for the fact that it takes that truth a little bit further. It implies here a response. It implies an outward manifestation of an inward assurance of heart. In other words, the person of faith is a person who lives what he believes. His life is committed to what his mind and his spirit are convinced of to be absolutely true. We see this over and over again in the examples that are given here in Hebrews 11. That there is an unmistakable relationship between faith and action. We are told that Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. That Noah, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. That Abraham obeyed and he went out, not knowing whither he went. And that Moses also chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Others, the writer says, subdued kingdoms and wrought righteousness and obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness they were made strong. They waxed valiant in fight. They turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And women received their dead raised to life again. And others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And this same faith that motivated the thinking and the actions of so many believers throughout the centuries had a profound influence upon the life of Jacob as well. And as a result, our text begins by stating, by faith, Jacob well, having seen then in the first place the nature of Jacob's faith, let us now look secondly at the occasion of Jacob's faith. The occasion of Jacob's faith. Our, tell, our text tells us that the example of faith that he is about to point to in Jacob's life occurred at the point when he was dying. The text tells us by faith, Jacob when he was dying. And this fact is confirmed several times in the passage that we read back in Genesis just a few moments ago. The text tells us there that we read earlier that the time drew near that Israel must die. And that text ended with Jacob himself confirming his imminent death by saying to Joseph, Behold, I die. Jacob stood at death's door. And our text indicates that he did so possessing a firm and unshakable confidence in the promises of God. Now for some believers, the hour of death brings with it the greatest test of faith that they are ever going to experience throughout the course of their lives. John Bunyan in his work, The Pilgrim's Progress, likens death to a dark or a black river that is very deep, through which all of us must one day pass. For Christian and hopeful, 
As they prepared to enter the river, they asked the two angels who had escorted them to the edge if the river was very deep. And to that question, the angels responded by saying the following, they said, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. And with that, Bunyan says that both men addressed themselves to the water. And what each man experienced was in many ways quite different from one another. Upon entering, we are told that Christian immediately began to sink. And he cried out to Hopeful and said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All of the waves go over me. For Christian, the experience of crossing the river of death was marked by great anxiety and despair. His eyes were for a short time taken off of Christ, and he quickly became self-absorbed in his present condition. His past sins deeply troubled him, and for a while he had convinced himself that Christ in the very end had forsaken him. Christian in the hour of death looked within himself to find hope, and he found none. And it was only when his good friend Hopeful said to him, Be of good cheer, Christian. Jesus Christ makes thee whole. That then Christian found firm ground to stand upon in the midst of the river. And as a result, he was able to confidently say at that moment, Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. On the other hand, Hopeful's river crossing was much different from that of Christian. It was marked by a confident and a triumphant faith. His hope and trust in his Savior remained firm all the way through. And unlike Christian's experience, when Hopeful entered the river, rather than sink, he confidently said, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. As he continued to cross, he steadfastly looked forward to the things that were ahead, and he was not distracted by the circumstances of death that surrounded him. And all the while as he crossed, he commended the Word of God to his dear friend Christian. He explained to his brother that his faith at that moment was being greatly tested, and he directed him to gaze upon the Savior, upon whom the believer's hope is firmly grounded. And such has been the experience of many believers in the hours of death. And like hopeful, death many times brings with it the most notable expressions and, of, of, and demonstrations of genuine faith in God. What a blessing it is to hear of or to personally behold a believer at the end of his earthly pilgrimage gladly and consciously leaving this world behind him and focusing his full attention on the promised glory that waits for him on the other side. D.L. Moody, as he lay on his deathbed, said to his son William shortly before he died, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. This is no dream. Will, it is beautiful. It is like a trance. 
If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it for years. Matthew Henry rightly stated that though the grace of faith is of universal use throughout our lives, it is especially so when we come to die. Faith has its great work to do at the last, to help believers to finish well, to die in the Lord so as to honor Him by patience, hope, and joy, so as to leave a witness behind them of the truth of God's Word and the excellency of His ways for the conviction and establishment of all that attend them in their dying moments. No doubt God has used death scenes such as Jacob's to remind His children of the fact that He who has begun a good work in them will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that he will enable his people to exercise faith in the midst of the trials and difficulties of life. And that he will never leave them or forsake them even in the hour of death. Hebrews 11, we see very clearly that the author of the book, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, sets out before us at length not only the nature, the fruits, and the triumphs of faith, but he also reminds us of its power to support the believer's soul, to comfort his spirit, and to direct his will in the midst of his final earthly struggle, and that is the hour of death. Well, having reminded his readers then of the nature of Jacob's faith and the occasion of Jacob's faith, let us now consider thirdly the circumstances of Jacob's faith. The circumstances of Jacob's faith. Our text continues by giving us here a brief statement regarding the circumstances under which Jacob's faith was demonstrated that is more fully revealed in the passage that we read earlier in Genesis 48. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph. We noted in the earlier reading of that passage that the blessing that was to be given to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, was not to be an equal blessing, but rather it was intended to be a discriminating one. The clearest feature of dying Jacob's faith is most clearly seen in the blessings of the two sons of Joseph. When Joseph brought his two sons before their grandfather to receive the patriarchal blessing, we read that Joseph placed Manasseh, the older son, nearest to Jacob's right hand and Ephraim closest to his left. Joseph's purpose in doing this was that Manasseh, because he was the firstborn, might be the recipient of the first and therefore the greatest portion of the blessing. And it was at this very moment that the faith of Jacob would be tested the most. Now we know that at this time Joseph was governor over all of the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh in authority and power. 
And not only that, but we also know that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And so with these two things in mind, it became necessary for Jacob to withstand the will of Joseph because he knew that it was the will of God that the greater blessing was to be given to the younger grandson Ephraim, even though that was contrary to the will of his son Joseph. And we read what happened beginning in verse 14, where we are told that Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands willingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. This is the manner in which the blessing was to be bestowed. Once again, God had ordained that the younger son was to be preferred before the elder. That is God's prerogative, and He has the right to distribute His favor and blessings as He pleases. The Lord said in Matthew 20 and verse 15, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? And so here Jacob submissively bows to the sovereign will of God in spite of Joseph's strong disapproval. You remember that the text said that when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. And the text goes on to inform us that Joseph's displeasure did not in any way deter Jacob from obeying the clearly revealed will of God to him concerning this particular matter. And so we are told that Jacob, his father, refused, and he said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger son shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. The writer to the Hebrews makes it clear that it was at this point that Jacob's faith shines the brightest. We see here that despite his sick and decaying body, Jacob exhibited at this very moment an undiminished spiritual strength. And though the years had weakened Jacob physically, he remained firm in faith and in the exercise of it. He repeated to Joseph the words, I know it, my son, I know it. Jacob had heard from God, and he believed that what God had told him was the truth. And as a result, he humbly submitted himself to that word and would not in any way be influenced by the will of man, even the will of his son Joseph. Humanly speaking, how probable would it be that these two sons of Joseph, who at that time were princes of Egypt, would forsake the land of their birth and move to the land of Canaan? And more than that, how improbable was it that they would become separate tribes in the nation of Israel? But Jacob believed that these things would happen and once again here in this passage, Jacob in the closing hours of his life recognized and expressed his confidence and trust 
in the covenant that God had made with his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, believing that those promises would be carried on through Joseph's sons as well, Ephraim and Manasseh. Scripture tells us that Jacob blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and let my name be named on them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. His words here express the faith that you and I as the people of God are to live by. The promises that God has made to us in His Word are the foundation of all of our blessings, both in this world and the world to come. And as a result of that, they are to be embraced. We are to draw our daily strength from them. And we are to walk all the days of our lives as Jacob did in the light of them. The man or woman who orders their life in such a manner will most certainly have every reason to rejoice and be confident in the hour of their death. Well, having seen then the nature of Jacob's faith and the occasion of Jacob's faith and the circumstances of Jacob's faith, let us now consider, finally, the disposition of Jacob's faith. The disposition of Jacob's faith. Our text concludes by reminding us of Jacob's disposition in this exercise of his faith. It says, By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. The reference here appears to refer to Jacob's disposition just prior to the blessing of the sons of Joseph as was recorded for us in the latter part of Genesis 47. It says there that when the time drew nigh that Israel must die, and he called his sons Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put I pray thee thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt, but I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, Swear unto me. And he sware unto him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. This request by Jacob to be buried in Canaan was much more than just a sentimental wish on the part of the patriarch. Rather, it was a clear demonstration of faith and an exhibition of his unwavering confidence that he had in the promises of God. And it is evidence from the text here that Jacob didn't care about the details surrounding his burial. The only thing that mattered to Jacob, we find here, was the location of his burial. His body must not be laid to rest with the ungodly Egyptians, but it was in the burying place of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, that he insisted upon being buried. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on Hebrews, 
lays out for us five reasons why Jacob was so insistent upon being buried in Canaan rather than in Egypt. He writes, and I quote, It was in the burying place of his fathers that Jacob wished to be buried. First, to show forth his union with Abraham and Isaac in the covenant. Second, to express his faith in the promises of God which concerned Canaan and not Egypt. Third, to draw off the minds of his descendants from a continuance in Egypt setting before them an example that they should think of returning to the promised land at the proper time and therefore confirming them in the belief of possessing it. Fourth, to signify that he would go before them, as it were, to take possession of the land on their behalf. And then fifth, to intimate that Canaan was a type of heaven, a better country, the eternal resting place of all of the people of God, end quote. And so Jacob felt so strongly about this matter that he asked Joseph to place his hand under him, his thigh and made him swear that his wishes would be carried out as he had requested. This signified how important this issue was to Jacob. And after Joseph swore to his fathers that he would carry out his wishes, we are told then that Jacob bowed himself upon the bed's head. The writer to the Hebrews adds that he worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. Now at this point, commentators spend a great deal of time trying to reconcile these two statements regarding Jacob's position in the bed as he worshipped. Now, there are many who would seek to exploit these seeming contradictions in Scripture to try to justify their disbelief in the inerrancy of the Word of God. Now, as time isn't going to allow us this morning to go into the various viewpoints relating to this matter, let me just say that I believe that the answer to this issue is very simple, and that is this, that Jacob did both. He bowed himself toward the head of the bed and at the same time leaned upon the top of his staff. We know that the Holy Spirit inspired both writers to record the events that took place on that occasion. And in this specific detail regarding how Jacob worshipped, the Hebrews account merely gives us additional information that is not recorded for us in the Genesis account. So when we combine the two statements together, Scripture gives us a fuller picture of how Jacob worshipped the Lord on that occasion. He mustered the strength to get up in the bed. He leaned upon the dead bedpost, and then no doubt his staff was very close to him. He laid hold of the staff, and he leaned forward upon it, worshipping the Lord. Well, having said that, the most important matter here is not what Jacob's position was as he worshipped, but rather the most important thing is that Jacob worshipped. Now, it's obvious from the Genesis account, as well as our text this morning, that Jacob was confined at this point to his bed due to sickness and to old age. 
However, it is clear from both of these references that Jacob, having secured the promise from Joseph that his will be carried out regarding his burial in Canaan, that then he mustered the little strength that he had to sit up in the bed and leaning upon the top of his staff, Jacob worshipped. He worshipped. And it was in this simple act of reverence and faith that Jacob acknowledged his utter dependence upon God, testifying to the fact that he was indeed a stranger and a pilgrim upon the earth, and that he was weary of his present world and longed to depart from it. He praised God for all that he had done for him throughout his life and the wonderful prospect that he had of eternal glory. We would read on in the Genesis account of the final hours of Jacob's life, at the end of chapter 49, when Jacob had finished charging his sons, the Word of God tells us that Jacob gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. The end of Jacob's life is certainly one that is enviable for all of us, even for those of you who may be here this morning who as of yet do not know the Lord, who are unconverted. Even a wicked man like Balaam, as he considered the happy end of the righteous, said in Numbers 23 and verse 10, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. Scripture informs us that Balaam's end was nothing even close to that of Jacob's. Instead, he died under the judgment of God because of his great wickedness. He did not walk by faith as Jacob did, but rather he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And that was true of all of us at one time, wasn't it, brethren? Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3, that we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The chief characteristic that marks the life of those who are truly the children of God is that they walk by faith and not by sight. The fact that the just shall live by faith is not only explicitly and implicitly stated throughout the Word of God, but we also have countless examples of this truth practically lived out for us in the pages of the Word of God. Jacob is just one of those examples. In verse 6 of Hebrews 11, the writer says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, we as sinners, if we are to if we, if we as sinners are to have any hope of finding acceptance with God and know the privilege and joy of fellowship and communion with Him, then we must do it on God's terms and not upon our own. Scripture says very clearly that without faith it is impossible to please Him. In the same manner, we read in Romans 8 and verse 8 that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh are those who are yet dead in trespasses and sin. 
They are those who yet remain in their lost and in their unregenerate state. Vast numbers of such people have sought and still seek to please God apart from faith. They are convinced that God is pleased by their good works, that He is pleased by their religiosity and by their many good intentions. Many believe that all roads, that all religions eventually lead to God. And they maintain the false assurance that regardless of the means, they will somehow find acceptance with Him. But God has said in His Word that he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And so the question this morning is, do you and do I implicitly believe what God has said in His Word concerning Himself, concerning our sin, concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, concerning His redemptive work on the behalf of sinners, and concerning the great and precious promises that He has made to all of those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10 and verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. God has given us everything that we need to know as it relates to life and godliness. As Spurgeon rightly stated, faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of divine revelation. Well, brethren like Jacob, may God help each one of us so to trust. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You once again for Your Word. And Lord, Your Word tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And Father, as we've spent some time this morning considering together uh, your grace in the life of Jacob and the faith that he exercised in you and in the promises that you had given to him in your word. Lord, we pray that our faith would be strengthened. Lord, that as we read your word and study it, that we would continue to grow in faith in the knowledge of our Savior, that our faith would become stronger and stronger until the hour of death. Lord, once again, we pray for any in our midst who as of yet do not know you, we pray that they themselves, even this morning, would come to faith and trust in you. We would ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.